Hope you're having a good Sunday morning. If you turn your Bible to Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. If you don't have one at home, feel free to grab one on the way out. Uh, on the table in the back, we'd love for you to have, uh, have one. Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and in him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. There have been a number of really crazy or seemingly foolish ideas that in the end turned out to be kind of genius. For example, in May of 2015, a man named Alex Craig, a guy from Texas, he saw a picture of a potato on Instagram or some social media or something with stamps on it. And that inspired him to start a business called Potato Parcel, where you could send a personalized potato to somebody anywhere in the country. And you could, you know, write whatever note you wanted on there. There's all these different specialized potatoes. Seems like a really stupid, crazy idea. Went on Shark Tank in 2016. Uh, Mark Cuban said it was stupid on the stick. Lori Grenier said it was uh, something that shouldn't be considered seriously for investing, but one shark invested in it, and uh, since they opened, they've sold over 70,000 potatoes. And they're selling uh, six figures worth of potatoes every year. It's a crazy, foolish idea, but it, it worked. Or, for example, take a company called Vitality Air. It started out as a joke. Uh, the two uh, founders of the company took a bag and put some air in it, and they put it on eBay and advertised it as Canadian air, fresh Canadian air for sale. First time they sold it for 99 cents. They absorbed the shipping cost, paid 10.99 to ship the 99 cent bag of air. But they thought, we'll try it again. The second time, an American bought it for 168 dollars. $168 for a bag of air. So that inspired them to start a company called Vitality Air, and what they do is they sell canned air. This is not medicinal oxygen. This is, not, this is just air, Canadian mountain air that they sell in a bottle. And they sell oxygen and mists and stuff like that too. It seems like a really crazy idea, but this year they're estimated to do $500,000 in sales, a canned air business. 
Or take, for example, a city in Spain, Brunette, Spain. They had a problem with uh, dog owners who uh, they would be walking their dog and the dog would do their business. They'd leave it there. So they came up with this idea. Every time they, saw, they would see a dog uh, doing their business, they would send somebody up to that person and they would just kind of make small talk with them and somehow find out the dog's name. And then if they left it there, they would go and look up the breed and the dog's name in the database that they had, the dog registry. Then they would collect the poop, put it in a container, and then they would send it to the owners. Seems like a really silly idea, but it actually worked. It cut down 70% of the amount of poop in, the, in that city. Crazy, foolish ideas, but they worked. And this passage that we're looking at today, in a sense, God is going to do something that seems pretty crazy. On the surface, it seems kind of foolish. But when we look closely, we'll see that it's really marvelous. We'll see in this passage that the wisdom of God is foolishness to men, but it's also marvelous. The wisdom of God is foolishness to men, but it's also marvelous. So that's where we're going, but let's jump right into this passage of this parable. Now to understand this parable, we need to understand where we've come from. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, thrown the whole city into an uproar. Then he enters into the temple and he overthrows the money changers, drives the buyers and the sellers out of the temple. The religious leaders are seeking to put him to death, but they don't because they're afraid of the crowds who are astonished at what he's doing. And then the religious leaders come and they question his authority. They say, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus doesn't give them a straight answer on that. And then Jesus gives this parable that he tells against them. Jesus begins by telling about a man who plants a vineyard. And he puts a fence around it. He digs a pit for the wine press. He builds a tower for protection. And now when he's saying these things, he's quite clearly alluding to a passage in Isaiah chapter 5. And that passage goes like this. Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And then in verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planning. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So when we're looking at this parable, we can see quite clearly that the vineyard represents Israel. And the man, the landowner, represents God. God plants a vineyard that is Israel. And then it says in the text that the landowner leased out his land to tenants. And this was common in the ancient world, that a landowner would rent out the land to tenant farmers, and they would work the land, and then in return, the tenant farmers would give them uh, usually somewhere between 25 to 50% of what they took in. And these tenant farmers likely represent Israel's religious leaders, maybe even the people of Israel in general. And so in the parable, the season comes for the harvest, and the landowner sends a servant to collect the harvest, collect his share of the harvest. And it says in the text that the first servant was beat, sent away empty-handed. 
So then the landowner sends another servant. It says in the text that he was, he was also beat, hit in the head, and treated shamefully. Now we might expect the story to kind of turn here. The landowner in the ancient world had all the power. They had all the authority. They, they owned the land and they had every right to land. We might expect at this point, after two servants were mistreated, that the landowner would come and he would lay down the hammer on the tenants. There was even reports of some landowners, allegedly in the ancient world, hiring assassins to come and to take out tenant farmers who were unfaithful. So we might expect that to be the turn that this text takes. But we don't see that. We see that the landowner sends another servant. Next servant they kill. Then another, and another, and another, and another. Probably till he was out of servants. And it says that some they beat and some they kill. Now these servants that were sent represent the prophets that were sent by God to Israel. And these prophets were sent by God to Israel to, to tell them to repent, to return to God. And many of them were treated very poorly. We don't have a full record of what happened to all the prophets. Mostly because you know the books were written by the prophets. So we don't have a record of all their deaths. But there were some ideas and some apocryphal writings. Apocryphal writing is a, is a writing that's not necessarily something we believe was inspired by God. But it's just kind of like a history per se. And these apocryphal writings talked about the prophets being brutally treated. For example, there was a tradition that said that Isaiah was son in two. So we know that the prophets were treated very poorly. And in Hebrews, it alludes to that. In Hebrews, the, the kind of hall of faith, so to speak, we see all the heroes of the faith and the prophets are included in that. And in Hebrews chapter 36, verses 37, it says this of them. It says, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains of imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Sounds a lot like this parable. Some servants were beat, some were killed. That's what happened to the prophets. They came to speak on behalf of God, to lead the people to repentance, and yet the people rebelled against them. The people persecuted them, choosing to go their own way. And we see in this parable, after sending all of these servants to the tenant farmers, again, we might expect that they, the owner would give up, lay down the hammer of law. But when he runs out of servants, or seems to run out of servants, he says he has one left. He has his beloved son. He says, they'll respect my son. Now, there, there's some logic to that in the sense that the son had more authority than the servants. The son had more power than the servants, so maybe they would respect him. But really, what was the landowner thinking? He'd sent all these servants, perhaps dozens of servants, each one had been brutalized. Each one had, many of them had been, had been killed. And yet still he chooses to send his son. It's kind of a crazy plan. It seems foolish on the surface, but he wants to apparently give them one last chance to repent. But his goodwill is not rewarded. And we see that the tenant farmers take the son, kill him, Throw him outside of the vineyard. 
Don't even give him a proper burial. They treat him with the utmost disrespect. And they say to themselves, here comes the heir. If we kill him, then the land will be ours. We don't know exactly why they thought that. Perhaps they thought that the father had died and now everything belonged to the son. But they kill him thinking that they'll get the inheritance, thinking that they'll get the land and treat him as a criminal. Don't even give him a proper burial. In the same way, God sent Israel prophet after prophet after prophet that they mistreated and killed. Calling them to live a life of righteousness, but they wouldn't listen. They said, I want to go my own way. And you think at this point that God would give up. You would think at this point he would say, I'm done. And he would come in judgment. Especially after his last prophet, John the Baptist, was beheaded. You would think he would have given up. But yet he chose to send his only beloved son. To give Israel one last chance. Seemed like a crazy plan. Seemed kind of foolish. After they had mistreated all the prophets to send his son. But he gave them one last chance. But as we know, they didn't take it. As we know, they treated him just as poorly as they treated all the prophets. Just as poorly as they treated the servants, they treated the son. They treated him with the utmost dishonor, nailing him to a cross, scorning him, putting upon him the curse of God. Seems like a crazy plan for God to send his son to experience such a thing. But in Isaiah chapter uh, 55 or 65, it talks about God giving them chance after chance after chance. It says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that's not good, following their own devices. And so God shows the utmost mercy, sending prophet after prophet, saying, return, return, return. And then he sends his son and says, return. And yet they go their own way. And it wasn't just Israel. We all have a tendency to go our own way. And so Jesus is crucified. The son in the parable is crucified. And it seems like the whole mission is an epic failure. It seems like it's a loss for the landowner. Yet though we know that though it might have seemed like a crazy plan, though it might have seemed foolish, God knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the the vineyard to others. And then he quotes the scripture. And the scripture that he quotes is very interesting. It's from the Hallel, from uh, Psalm 118. And we saw just a few, uh, last chapter, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the people cried, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was a quotation from Psalm chapter 118. And now Jesus is going to quote uh, Psalm 118, 22 to 23, right before that. And he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. A while back, I uh, was working on building a coffee table out of pallet wood. And I went to this business that had a bunch of pallets and I carefully looked through each of the pallets and tried to find the ones that had the best wood and the best coloring on them. And so I picked out the best ones and I took them home and I started breaking them apart. And some of them, when you, you know, when I was breaking them apart, they split. 
Some of them had nails that were coming out of them in all different places. Some of them were discolored. So I kind of filtered through and looked for the best ones. And I kept the best ones and I threw all the rest away. Now imagine after I did that. Imagine after I threw all the bad ones away. Imagine a master woodworker came by. He saw the wood that I had thrown out in the garbage. And he took all that wood out and he built the most beautiful table you could ever imagine. That's a kind of a picture of what Jesus is saying here. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I mean, you can imagine builders who had been experienced in building and they're looking through all these different stones looking for the one that would be the foundation stone, the most important stone of the whole building. And they see this one particular stone and they think to themselves, this isn't good for anything. And they toss it aside. Not even, not for the foundation stone, not even for any part of the building, they just throw it aside. But that stone becomes the cornerstone, the most important part of the structure. Likewise, Jesus is going to be rejected. He's going to be the one that the builders reject, scorned, ultimately sentenced to die. But the man who's hung on the cross, who's crucified, who's cursed by God, is the one who will become the cornerstone of the new temple. He's going to be the key to how people can relate to God. And remember what it says in the text. It says, this is the Lord's doing. Didn't catch God by surprise. The fact that his son was rejected, it didn't catch him by surprise. He knew it was going to happen, and he had a plan through that. That even through the most evil deeds that could ever be imagined, God could work good through it. That through the utmost wickedness, God could bring salvation to the world. To the world, it would all seem like foolishness. That God would even send his son to such a people. And that if he did so, that he would send him to be born in Bethlehem, in a stable, in a manger. That he would grow up and he wouldn't gather a group around him of military men to fight against Rome. He would gather a group of fishermen, tax collectors. He'd hang around with prostitutes and sinners. No one would think that the Messiah would die on the cross. To the world, God would be foolish to subject his Messiah to such suffering. Yet God knew what was going to happen. He knew that through their rejection, Jesus would pay the sin for the sins of his people. So that whoever would come to him would find life. That's the wisdom of God. It seemed like foolishness. It seemed like craziness to everyone who saw it on the outside. But it was also marvelous. Through it, God brought salvation to the world. Isn't it amazing that God can take foolish things and make them into marvelous things? Isn't it amazing that he can take the most incredible tragedies, the most heinous evil, and yet use them somehow for the good of his people? As we live on our lives in this broken world, we all face suffering. We all face difficulties. And there's this type of suffering that I think we have an easier time dealing with. You know, you hear a story about a man who had a faithful witness to the gospel. You know, lived a full life, and at 95 years old, he goes to meet the Lord, and we see hundreds of people come to his funeral and come to know Jesus, and we see all the effects of his life. We think, well, he 
He lived a good life. He brought many people to the Lord. And it makes sense to us when those things happen. But then there's other things that happen in our life. Suffering and trials that seem kind of like foolishness. And we throw up our hands and, you know, the more we think about it, we just don't know why it's happening to us. Family loses a small child. Lose a job that we rely on to support our families. Loved one comes down with cancer. A madman enters into an elementary school and just starts shooting kids up. We look at some things in our lives and we think, what in the world is happening? Why would God allow this to happen? You know, and we know that God doesn't cause these things, that they're caused by mankind's evil actions, but we know also that He could step in. He could step in and stop every bit of evilness if He wanted to. But we wonder, why doesn't He? Why doesn't He step in? The only answer that God gives us sometimes is, I can still bring good out of this. I can still bring hope out of this. I can still use this tragedy for your good and for my glory. And that's the place where our faith really is tested. Where it's really determined as if our faith is real. Because when things are going great and everything makes sense in our life, it's really easy to say we have faith in God. But when things start happening in our life that seem like foolishness, that seem crazy, that's when we have to decide, do we really believe what God says? Do we really believe that God is for us? Do we really believe that he wouldn't allow anything to happen to us unless it was for our good and for his glory? That's what the scriptures say. Soren Kierkegaard in his journals puts it this way. When the believer has faith, the absurd is not the absurd. Faith transforms it, but in every weak moment it is again more or less absurd to him. The passion of faith is the only thing which masters the absurd. If not, then faith is not faith in the strictest sense, but a kind of knowledge. Even when things happen that seem crazy in our life and we don't get them, we trust in God. We trust that He has a plan. There's a story about a minister whose son committed suicide, and ten days after he committed suicide, he got into the pulpit to give a sermon. And the sermon was on the text, uh, Romans 8, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He got up to the pulpit, and under considerable duress, he said this, I cannot make my son's suicide fit into this passage. It's impossible for me to see how anything good can come out of this. Yet I realize that I only see in part. I only know in part. He says it's like the miracle of the shipyard. Almost every part of our great ocean-going vessels are made of steel. If you take any single part, be it a steel plate out of the hull or the huge rudder, and throw it in the ocean, it will sink. Steel doesn't float. But when the shipbuilders are are finished, when the last plate has been riveted in place, then that massive steel ship is virtually unsinkable. He said, taken by itself, my son's suicide is senseless. Throw it into the sea of Romans 8.28 and it sinks. 
Still, he said, I believe when the, that when the eternal shipbuilder has finally finished, when God has worked out his perfect design, even this senseless tragedy will somehow work to our eternal good. Soren Kierkegaard again puts it this way. Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. It can only be understood backwards. As we're walking through life, there'll be a lot of things that happen that we scratch our heads and we wonder, God, why would you allow this to happen? And we have a choice. Do we trust him? Do we believe that he's really for us? Or do we turn and go our own way? The Apostle Paul, in writing in Romans 9 to 11, talks about the rejection of Israel and that how even through Israel's rejection, God brought salvation to the world. And in that moment, he ends with a praise to God. And I think that it's a fitting thing for us to read today. Because even when we experience difficulty, even when we don't understand, in the end, God's going to bring something good out of it. And isn't it marvelous that God can do that? Isn't it marvelous that God can use the most terrible junk in our life? The most terrible things, and yet He can bring something good out of that. Apostle Paul says this, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, and how unscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Wisdom of God is foolishness to men. But it's also marvelous. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that even... As your son was rejected, you had a plan in that. That even though we weren't deserving, you chose to send your son, knowing that he would be rejected, knowing that he would be brutalized, but also knowing that you would use that to bring salvation to all of us who trust in him. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's going through difficulties and trials. For those who are questioning what you're doing in their life. Those who can't see anything good coming out of the situations that they're in. Lord, I pray that we'll trust in you through those situations. That even though we don't see it, even though we don't understand it, that by faith we'll trust that you have a plan, that you have a purpose, and that you're the God who can bring good out of the most terrible situation. Lord, give us that faith through your Holy Spirit today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.